Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we're discussing The Great Gilly Hopkins by Katherine Patterson, which was a 1979 Newberry Honor book. We are starting our eighth season today, and it is a very short season of two books, because that's all that was honored in 1979. And the reason is because I am such a big nerd. We both are. You know we yeah, both that's, are. That's true. <laughs> because I figured out the number of episodes we need to record to make our 100th episode a review of Heinrich Wilhelm Van Loon's The Story of Mankind, which was the first winner in 1922. So it necessitated us having a two-episode season. So welcome. (laughs) (laughs) It also, I think for me personally, it's two of my favorites. So this is a treat for me as well. But to get us started, I have an annotation from the School Library Journal, and it reads, 11-year-old Gilly Hopkins is a foster child seemingly modeled on the Tatum O'Neill character from Paper Moon and Bad News Bears. She's endowed with an above-average intelligence, a stubborn aggressiveness, and uncanny abilities to lie, steal, and see through hypocrisy. Shunted from one foster home to the next because her guardians are unable to control her, Gilly is placed, as the story begins, in a home run by Miss Trotter, who cares for seven-year-old recluse William Ernest, an elderly blind black Mr. Randolph. And I think I'm going to stop there because it starts to give away, starts to give away a lot of the plot points that we're going to talk about. Yes. And I think we're going to have probably a fairly lively discussion about this book, honestly. But to, to start with, just generically, do you like this book? I know you just said it's your favorite, so I'm guessing the answer is yes. It's one of my favorites of the Newberry books, but it's down on the list. Not that it's a bad book by any means, but there are several other ones that are absolute favorite books. And The Westing Game is one of my all-time absolute favorite books. Yes. So, And The Westing Game is the book that we're reviewing next, just yes. for those of you who do not know or have memorized the list like the rest of us nerds. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it was the winner for this year. Yeah. I would say it's a favorite, you know, it was a favorite when I was a kid, and so it has a special place in my heart. That is to say, reading it as an adult, I was really caught off guard because it had been very, a very, very long time since I had read it. Well, so here's where I think the differing opinion is going to come in because I did not read this as a child, and it is not my favorite I'm gonna go. I'm gonna start it off with saying that I I actually love Catherine Patterson. I love her other books. She wrote two other Newbery books. This was a Newbery honor, but she won two medals for Bridge to Terabithia and Jacob Have I Loved. And those books I I really love. I intentionally did not reread either of those adjacent to this because I didn't want them to color my impressions of this book. So I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure because of, they were written in the 70s and everything is a product of its times, they may have problematic elements too. But reading this cold as an adult is a little difficult for me. It, we can get more into what the problematic issues are, but they were very problematic for me. So I, I mean, I agree. There's definitely problematic issues. I also have done a little bit of digging and... I know that that was intentional. I know. I absolutely know. Um, But it's still, when people say hurtful things, even though they have good intentions, they're still hurtful, right? So Mm -hmm. a person reading this book who's in one of the groups being maligned in this book or or for whom the the language is offensive, it it doesn't reduce the hurt that it has a point in terms of character development. No, that's that's very true. And I'm not by any means for, you know, forgiving Gilly and saying that she it was okay, mm-hmm. you know. But I also think that I think for a time and place and this is definitely a book I wouldn't just hand to a kid or yeah. <laughs> now like I would I would definitely want there to be discussion about it and a guided discussion about it. But I also think that it was a lesson. It's a book that has a lesson in it for white children. And I think that is still a bit unusual, a lesson for white children on racism. And I think that's still a bit unusual. 
I also think that it's so blatant that it doesn't show up that in that way that much anymore. It's a bit more clouded. You think people are more subtle about being racist? I th- I think people I think the language is language has changed, right? Maybe. And I think there's 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 a lot more like dog whistles rather than like actual like four alarm fire horrible language just being said out loud. I'm I'm not saying that it's not still being said, but I'm saying it's 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 gotten sneakier in a lot of ways, I think. Well, I think I think that was the hope, but I think in the past few years especially, I think the people who have been sneakier about that kind of thing have come out of the woodwork and been a lot more blatant. So I think maybe that's why this is hitting me extra hard because I feel like the people who have those feelings about race or weight or, you know, mental status, I feel emboldened to to talk the way that Gilly talks. I guess we should start with start with get into the plot so that people understand yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, let's go into the plot. So Gilly Hopkins, Galadriel Hopkins, is a foster child. We learn very quickly that she is now on her way to her third foster home in three years. Other family, the other families, one, they moved and left her. And she has a a really heartbreaking description of that. Like they left her like like a cat or a dog. And the other family just didn't feel like they could control her. And so she has got a very, very bad attitude. Paired with the fact that she's incredibly intelligent and quick-minded and rude, this makes for a very different type of female protagonist or girl protagonist in books, particularly in the 1970s, but I think even now. Yes. And so when the book is opening, she is headed to a new foster home with her social worker. And the poor social worker is clearly trying her best, but doesn't know how to handle Gilly and takes her to a home owned by, what's her first name? Mamie? Mamie Mamie Trotter. Yeah. By a woman named Mamie Trotter, who is who's referred to just as Trotter. (laughs) And there's another foster kid there who's seven named William Ernest. And he's like this very shy, reclusive seven-year-old who always, he's very flinchy (laughs) is the best way to describe him. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's usually hiding behind Trotter when we first see him in these, these opening pages and he's kind of peering out. And I always picture just like a little, like a mop of hair and a little pair of glasses, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Kind of peeping out. And so, I mean, to me, he's instantly sympathetic. He's obviously been given a rough turn of things, and he's finally in a place physically where he feels safe, and that that safety is with Trotter. So to me, that's a really great telegraphing of who Trotter is as a person really, really early on, you know, that she's taken on this, this child that is described as having characteristics that are seen as being, you know, kind of weak because he's also described as being kind of slow, which is, you know, I don't know. I, I just feel like it's a really good shorthand for us to see what type of person Trotter is really quickly. No, I agree. And although his feeling of safety evaporates a little bit once Gilly gets there, she, yeah. she really gets a kick out of tormenting him at first. There's also a neighbor who's up the street who is this small black man who's blind, but has this amazing good attitude. Um, and his name is Mr. Randolph, and he comes and has dinner with them every night. And one of Gilly's jobs, or or William Ernest's jobs every night, is to go and sort of escort him over because he can't see to walk. And he's, he, yeah, he's incredibly sweet. He's got such a good attitude. And what I love about Mr. Randolph is that as the story goes on, you understand that he knows a lot about what's going on and understands understands the situation better than, than Gilly and the reader may have first thought. Yeah, he's definitely choosing to have rose-colored glasses, but he's, yeah. he's not oblivious. Yeah. 
but I, you know, I also love what I love about his character too, is that he, you know, he has this detriment of not, of not being able to see, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't let that stop him in being social and going to church and, you know, making jokes and, you know, just really being like part of the community. Like I, I feel like Trotter of course has helped him stay connected with the outside world, but he has such a good attitude that he didn't just stay in his house or, you know, go and live with his son who really wants him to live with him because he knows that would be giving up his freedom. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole premise of the book is just that Gilly goes to live here and is mean and awful to everybody. (laughs) And then over time remains mean and awful, but starts to love them anyway. (laughs) This is my summary of the book. I know, I know. And, and yes, she, she does and says things that are horrible, right? Like I can't defend those by any means, but to me there is market growth. And I think that while I can't defend and will not defend the things she says and does that are racist and ableist and sizist and all of those things, I also think that there is I I think it's important for several reasons, and I think the book pulls off some things that are kind of astounding, but all that is to say, I would not just hand this to a middle grade reader. I would want to read this with a middle grade reader and, and talk about each issue and each item as we go. There was just so much of it is the thing. You know, I... Like I'll take I'll take a quote or two from the FAQs on Katherine Patterson's webpage because this I mean it's clearly intentional. So she's talking about a, a different book at this point and somebody asked her about different characters besides these but I think it speaks to her attitude towards characters in general. It says if they're to be real they must speak and act like real people. I have a lot of respect for my readers. I don't expect them to imitate my characters simply to care about them and understand them. So that that seems pertinent here. And then yeah. when she's speaking about Gilly specifically, she says, Gilly's a lost child who lies, steals, bullies, despises those who are different or perceived to be weaker. A child like this does not say fiddlesticks when frustrated. I couldn't duplicate her real speech without drowning the story in obscenity, but I had to hint at her language. She would not be real if her mouth did not match her behavior. So I I do absolutely understand that point. It just, there is so much that comes out of her mouth or her mental, you know, her, her thoughts that is so offensive in, in the way that she's talking about other people that it's just, mm, what am I trying to say? It's, it's a bit much to bite off in, in a kid's book. Like, I know this book has been banned a lot and I'm not advocating for that at all. I'm just saying in, in terms of books that I enjoy reading, this is low on the list. And in terms of books that I would recommend to a kid the same age as the protagonist, again, low on the list. I'm not saying there's no merit to it, and I know that she has a lot of growth. And you, you know what bothers me? You know what it really boils down to? The growth is for her. Mm-hmm. The, the growth is completely for Gilly. Like, she gets to a point where she loves Trotter and she loves William Ernest, but it is for her. She is the only one who benefits. On the same last page of the book where she tells Trotter on the phone that she loves her, she also says, go to hell. And there's no, she never gets, she never gets to a point where she can be kind to people or she never gets to a point where she understands her feelings about overweight people or black people are wrong. She just gets to a point where she can love them anyway. And nobody benefits except for her. So it's just, it just stays selfish to me. I would disagree to a certain extent. So to me, I feel like one, you know, if it had been a huge turnaround, it would have felt disingenuous. Right. I also feel like, you know, I feel like Trotter and maybe not Mr. Randolph, but I feel like Trotter and William Ernest do benefit from Gilly kind of softening and becoming less Gilly a little bit less gilly, but she's still going to be gilly, 
right? So to me, like saying go, her saying go to hell when she realizes that she can't just have what she wants, she has actually been taught by Trotter to be, you know, to to be the type of person that takes care of your family, even if they're people you don't know very well. To me, that showed an enormous amount of growth, but it's, she's still gilly. So she's still going to be like, yeah, well, F you. I, <laughs> well, hopefully but, that's understandable why I wouldn't like her then. <laughs> yeah. But I also, I, I feel like it really, it follows through and it sees the character through. So when she ends up in this, she ends up in this new, this new foster situation She's determined that she's not going to put down roots or care about anybody or have a different experience in any way from what she's had previous. So pretty soon after she ends up at Trotter's, she gets a postcard from her mom, who uh, whose name is Courtney, and who she has a picture of. And this, she's this, in the picture, she's this beautiful young lady. And Gilly's convinced that her mom wants her to come out to California to, to live with her, despite there not being any evidence, really. At all. Uh, at all. But, so, the, but the postcard has an address, finally, so she knows where to go. Yeah, she finally knows where to go, and she realizes she's going to need some money. So she she starts counting up what she has, and she starts figuring out how much she'll need, and she's hiding this on the bottom of a dresser in the room that she has at Trotter's. Meanwhile, she's starting to settle into school a little bit, and she's really upset by and ruffled by the fact that she has a teacher who's African-American and who is really self-assured and doesn't seem to take any of Gilly's crap. Yeah, and she's also very upset at the fact that because of the poor quality of her last school, she's behind the majority of her class academically, even though they are black. Like, that's very offensive to her. I, <laughs> I just... No, I mean, it's it's gross and it's horrible. It's but gross I, and, it's, and the, but the thing is, like, I get that, particularly in the 70s, like, this is the way that some people truly were. And I hate to say it, but I'm sure that some people are that way truly now. So oh, I'm yeah. sure it's a yeah. faithful portrait of, like... A, you know, a small town attitude and probably, and especially given the quality of the foster families that she had, I'm sure th- these are attitudes that she picked up in these terrible foster homes. And I know from reading about Catherine Patterson that part of the inspiration of this book was when Catherine Patterson herself was a foster mother. So I know that it was, it was, faithful to observations that she made in some respects. I don't know the specifics. So I'm hopefully, hopefully nobody that she was fostering had the specific terrible attitudes of Gilly. But it's just that if I think this book, just that I think that if this book were written today, it it would be very different. There, there are certain things that Gilly does that Trotter stomps out immediately when she's, you know, borderline bullying William Ernest, mm-hmm. she's like, absolutely not. That will not fly. So I think that in current times, if a kid like Gilly said some of the things that she said about race or size or whatever, or, me- oh my God, mental deficiency, like that, those comments, like that would be mm-hmm. something that any normal person would immediately stomp out with with more vigor than the bullying. I think that a foster parent who's trying to do what Trotter is doing, which is kind of let Gilly be herself enough to be comfortable, but to draw a hard line somewhere to say mm-hmm. you cannot do that um, and enforce it, which she does about certain things. I just think that the racism and fat shaming and things like that would be on the other side of that hard line these days. Okay. That makes sense. So it's weird to see like Trotter finds those things acceptable enough to let them go at that point. Okay. Yeah, I understand. Okay. 
Yeah, and I I think that I think you're right. I mean, all this stuff is it's not defendable and it's not okay by any means. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm attacking like a childhood favorite book of yours, and that no 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 no, it's not no, my intent. Because no. I mean, no, no. I certainly I still love the Little House on the Prairie books, and I am the first to admit that there's some really problematic stuff in there. But it's hard when you when you read a book as a kid and you sort of internalize this love of it, but you're not you're not old enough to examine it. Well, but. You know, I think that this is where some of our differences come in just in, in, you know, growing up. So, because I grew up in the deep South and I grew up with a mom that had been raised or, you know, I'm from the Northeast, but I grew up in the deep South. I, you know, and I was surrounded by kids like Gilly, you know? Mm. And so for me reading this, it was like, you know, I'm not saying that I wasn't racist in some way because it was around me and I just didn't, you know, you pick up what's around you. But my mom had always tried to teach me better and different. And it was really, I remember feeling like, oh, there's people outside of this situation that, you know, are, I guess I remember feeling like, Someone, it, it was almost like someone I knew had learned a lesson. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not it sure. It felt like there was hope for some of the people I knew to actually learn the lesson that just because someone has a different skin color doesn't mean they're less than. You're right, though, that it hits really hard. And I think it goes very, it, it makes a lot of headway with racism, but there's other isms in there that today would be tackled and or part of the whole, you know, why Gilly or how Gilly is behaving badly. Growing up in, in kind of rural South Carolina. I'm sure it was pretty prevalent. I knew kids like Gilly. Like I said, I knew the kids exactly like Gilly. And so it was, it was kind of, for me, it was a little bit of a lifeline of like, these people can learn better and they can learn different. And, you know, Maybe it doesn't, I don't know, maybe that'll happen, you know, I, I don't I just, know. I guess I just don't see enough evidence that, I, I agree with you that like some big huge turnaround would not be realistic, but I also don't see any evidence in Gilly whatsoever that she is getting over the racism at all. Like there's nothing to indicate that she doesn't still think that she is better than these people and I mean these to, people in quotation marks the way that she's using it. Like it's not cool. <laughs> to me well, to me it's a little more subtle than her actual racism. So the fact that she was she was caring for Mr. Randolph while he's sick, you know? The fact that she's she absolutely backs off and and is like, Okay, my teacher is kind of a badass and what I did was wrong. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't flap, I couldn't, you know, affect her and. But she, I mean, she never actually thinks she was wrong. She just kind of wants to beat her teacher. Yeah. But that's a big step from think looking down on. Yeah. So it's, to me, it's, it's contextual. It's not, it's not as cut and dry as maybe it could be or should be, but I do feel like there is growth in that, in that way. And you know, I, I appreciate that for what it is, yeah. um, you know, and hope that that's, that Gilly, you know, grows even further and is able to like, you know, not just be not racist, but be like anti-racist. She is called upon to read to Mr. Randolph and to retrieve a book from his house. And when she does that, she discovers that he has money in his bookcase and it's rolled up. And as a kid, I didn't realize that he actually has it rolled up to like signify what the different denominations are. Oh, what? I don't know what you mean. So if someone is low sighted or they are, they are blind, oftentimes they will fold money of different denominations in different ways. Oh. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I do know that that is one way that they, that that community 
works with paper money. See, coins are easy because they're all different. They're different shapes. They're very distinct shapes. Mm-hmm. No, that um, makes sense. Yeah, because mm-hmm. dollars would all feel the same. So that's something that I knew that I now that I didn't know before when I was a kid. And so to me, I was like, oh, he knows that money's there because he folded it. Whereas, you know, when you're a kid, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I guess, you know, he doesn't know it's there. And like, she's, you know, it's not good, but it's also kind of like, you know, I don't know the right way to say it. It's like a moral, it's a moral conundrum. And then she's failing the moral test, of course, but it's something maybe he didn't even know was happening. So, you know, it's, it's less harm done, right? Mm -hmm. Like. Like so, if he didn't know the money was there, it's less of a loss if she steals it. Well, less of a loss, but less of a like, maybe not less of a loss, but yeah. I mean, it's not directly affecting his economics and, and you know, it's not great what she's doing, but it also isn't going to like have a far reaching effect on him and he's going to lose his house and that kind of thing. But as a grown up, knowing that about the, the money folding, even just a little bit, it's, it's obvious that he has that saved away for something. Well, I guess I feel like I'm arguing with you about everything. I'm sorry. I feel I feel like she you're right in a way, but I don't think she cared about like she she certainly didn't care about that. Like when she steals money later, she steals money out of Trotter's purse. She knows, she actively knows that that money was like state payments for foster care because they were planning on buying Gilly a coat with it. But it doesn't stop her from stealing the entire amount, like no, no remorse whatsoever. Oh, no. I mean, no. What I'm saying about her taking his money is not about like, you know, that she didn't do anything wrong. It's it's that if she gets away with it, it's not going to harm him. Right. So, but that's, that was an erroneous perspective because- Knowing that it's folded means that he's aware of it and uses it slash depends on it for backup or something like that, right? Right. So, yeah, that's what but, I was trying to get with that. Gotcha. But So it doesn't make it right by any means, but it, you know, it, it means that he is, he's actively socked that away for a rainy day or for, you know, an emergency kind of thing. Yeah. So she steals that money and then she... And she gets William Ernest to help her do it. Oh, my God. And the only friend she makes at school whatsoever is this sad little girl named Agnes Stokes. And she recruits Agnes Stokes to help her steal this money. And Agnes, honestly, is also somebody I can't stand. I mean, obviously, these characters are written to be unlikable. But Agnes Stokes is this little sneaky girl who likes doing mean things and is actively into helping steal as long as she gets a cut of the money. So she does. So she gets paid $5 for helping to steal the $44 that that are up there and then wants to do more and is always pestering Gilly to do prank calls or, you know, do other kid bad things. And Gilly treats her horribly. And and that's that's it. That's their whole relationship. And it's... I mean, it's horrible because I, I don't know, you know, as a grown up, well, okay. You know, I knew kid. I also knew kids like Agnes, right? And, but as a grown up, when she calls her Rumpelstiltskin, I'm like, because of, you know, just knowing more and being in the world more, I'm like, is that, is that racist? <laughs> is a Rumpelstiltskin a racist? You know, like, and I, I still haven't figured that out, and it it's quite possibly is. Because, um, I mean, Gilly's just so mean and horrible. But, yeah, I mean, it, you know, the description of Agnes as being kind of unkempt and having dirty fingernails and not having someone who obviously cares about her, you know, hygiene and her well-being. And she's just left her own devices to make a friend like Gilly. This book won the National Book Award. It was a Newbery Medal winner. Like, it's one mm-hmm. of the, like, top 100 kids' books. I happen to have a differing opinion, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm like, I'm trying to dissect why I had this reaction to it. 
but it it doesn't mean that I'm right. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it it means that you had that reaction to it. It means that it struck a chord. I mean, it you know, I think I think it really shows the strength of what's the right word? The strength of it that you had that big of a reaction to yeah. it, and you, you know, I I think that that's that's pretty. It, it's well written. You don't just yeah. You don't just have a reaction to something a big a big reaction to something that's not good. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's well written. It's not the kid like this. Like I said, the plot itself is great. The characters supposed to be unlikable, so success there. It's just it's just the things that are hard to digest. I don't know, like. Bridge the Terabithia, for instance, hits a lot of people the wrong way too, but because it handles hard issues. And I feel like that they're dealt with more. Th- no, these are just different. I don't know why. I don't know why it's different. I think because I personally am so offended by some of Gilly's attitudes in adults in current day life that it really just irks me more than it might had I read it earlier in life. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's probably that's probably what it is. I'm a little overly sensitive to some of her attitudes and I find it hard to forgive. Like even in a book character that is supposed to be unlikable who's who's had a really hard time in life, I really find it hard to forgive. And I think that's fair. I mean, you know, I, I think I'm also, I was just, I'm in a diff, bit of a different, I was in a bit of a different space and a different experience, you know, when I first read it. Yeah. Having, you know, a lot of really close close exposure, firsthand exposure to a lot of child races. And I I didn't have that. I honestly, I never did have that. I've, I've certainly had a fair share of like adult, more subtle races, like racism as an example in my life. I can imagine if you grew up with, with kids like that, like that would make this book hit differently. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's it for me. You know, it as as a kid, it was really interesting and kind of maybe cathartic to see one of those kids learn better to some degree. It also, I think, for me, gave an insight as to why the the saying like "hurt people hurt people," yeah, kind of thing, like. It gave me an insight as to why they might behave that way a little bit. And, I mean, now I wouldn't spend any time, like, trying to figure out or figure out racist because I just don't I, – I don't have that time in my life to do that. <laughs> but at the time, it was it was a really confusing way to, to grow up and to know better from home and to be – but be, to be surrounded by – by kids who just, you know, from what they had learned at home, just let it rip, you know? Well, I mean, in the book, especially like Gilly's motivation is very evident, you know, she, she's kind of at the bottom of the social barrel and feeling superior to anybody made her feel better about herself. And so she feels superior to everybody (laughs) for like, for what she considers to be very tangible and real reasons, you know? then she she feels like she's better than them, literally. And of course that makes her feel better because as a foster kid in the situation that she's in, she has to scrape up some respect for herself. Yeah. I You know, and I, I think it altogether, you know, I think, I don't think that Catherine Patterson condones no, what no, Gilly no. says and does. And I was looking at her website as well and I thought it was really beautiful. She was talking about, you know, she uh, wanted to write about foster children after she had been a foster mom and felt like she hadn't done a good job about it, with it. And she felt like she really wanted to focus on bringing awareness to children who might feel disposable and feel like, you know, they're just kind of bopped around and and look at their inner lives a little bit. And then I also found this, it was an interview with, with Catherine Patterson from, I think, a few years back, around the time the movie came out. And 
The interviewer asked Patterson why she made Gilly racist when it's just a hot button issue. And moreover, why did she let Gilly use the N-word? And she explains, this is Catherine Patterson's answer. I had to have her do something so outrageous that she would recognize how angry she was. That terrible card is so jarring and so awful. And when you see how the teacher handles it, first, you see that Gilly has to confront her own racism. And second, that the teacher does not let the racism destroy their relationship. And I and I think that that you know I think it comes from a place of of wanting better for all children you know wanting these children like the ones I grew up with who are now you know middle aged people having a way to jolt them out of these mindsets that they may have been taught so you know it's not pretty and it's not perfect but I I do feel like there was a lot of consideration put in it and I can't imagine being a, a child of color and reading this and how that would affect me. I, I don't know. You well, know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I have no doubt that Catherine Patterson had wonderful intentions and there's no doubt that she's an amazing writer. Like she just is. But this, and that's part of the reason why I want to see, she wrote the screenplay for the movie. So I'm interested to see how that changed with the times, but this is a book for white kids. Like, this is a book to show how, yes, discarded, like, underserved children can can confront their biases and turn it around. But it, it's a book for white kids to learn that lesson. Like, the black kids reading this book are not going to get that. They're just going to get that they're being insulted and demeaned for the sake of Gilly's personal growth, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I completely get that, and I can't defend it on any of that front. I, I will say that I do think that it is useful to have something specifically for small, you know, white racist children <laughs> that might jolt some sense into them. Yeah. You know? like, I mean, I'm not saying so it's not I, a useful tool in that respect. I'm no, just saying, that, like, no. in considering who to recommend this book to. <laughs> so oh, but, I mean, yeah, but, you know, yes, exactly. And so, you know, it is not a book that I would say is for every reader by any means. But, you know, if it is had, I, I know at some point, you know, over the years, it's had to have some kind of positive impact with little racist white assholes. <laughs> you know? Yes. And I can't help but feel like that, that does serve a purpose. It's worth something. It is worth something. It's I mean, just, and I say that I say that knowing a lot of them, and I'm not going to defend them. You know, I, hopefully they've grown out of it, you know, but I grew up with a lot of them, and they needed something like this. No, and, I do. It's, it's worth a lot to yeah. try and change people's minds, like to change people's minds in a non-aggressive way and make them just realize the error of their ways is huge. It's just that I have reservations about things. <laughs> well, I mean, I can see, you know, reservations about this being something that like, should it be required reading for uh, an entire class? You know, if you are, have a lot of supporting materials and you're going to have some good discussions about it, sure. Yeah. But, you know, are you going to just assign it for summer reading and then, you know, they have to write an essay about it? Maybe that's not the best course of action. Right. This needs you know, to like, just be talked about a lot. Yeah, maybe it does really need, you know, you need you need a, a a hand on that, right? Like, you're not just you're not just assigning this and then, you know, alienating half of your class yeah. and then it, then it needs making them, you know, making them or yeah, making them produce something on it and then not really talking it out because yeah. I I feel like that defeats the purpose of the book. Yeah, I think with context and guidance. Yeah. It, yeah, it's worthwhile. I personally do not have any read-alikes for this book. Do you have any? I do. Let's hear them. So, read-alikes, the one that sprung to mind is by another Newbery medalist, Pinballs by Betsy Byers. It's also about foster children, also in the 70s, also has some questionable content, but if you enjoy looking at societal attitudes that may or may not be upsetting um, <laughs> uh, from that era, that's a really good read-alike, a really good pair. And then a more modern one, and this is a bit a bit farther afield as far as themes go, but it does have the themes of a foster child and 
fitting into a community, creating community and having that idea of creating your own family. And it's called The Season of Sticks Malone and it's by Kekla Magoon. And it's just a really, it's a really good summer read. It's about these two brothers, Caleb and Bobby Jean. They're exploring their their town one summer during summer break. And they come across Sticks Malone, who is a very cool guy. And they decide to pull off this caper and it's called The Great Escalator Trade. And the idea is you turn one small thing into more and then that that next thing into something more. And there's revelations of secrets and and it's just it's a really a really sweet book and also a really interesting book with a a character who's a foster child but not by any means the type of foster child that that gilly is but but yeah i i like it in part i mean there's a lot of things reasons why i like that book but in part because of the the found family and the the building community where you are aspect that i do think is in gilly as well very cool We're doing something a little bit different moving forward until we can record together again for several seasons now because the pandemic just rages on. We keep saying we're going to, we've got these drinks and we're going to make them and we're going to drink them when we get together. Now, you guys know this alcohol is expensive. And (laughs) I, Marcy and I don't have it in us to buy a bunch of like two sets of like specialty liquors and all that stuff. It's just too much, right? So, what we're going to do moving forward until we actually can record together again, and we have no idea when that'll be, we're going to do snacks instead. So, I chose for Great Gilly Hopkins, I chose bubble gum. And I have forced Marcy into a little bit of a taste test. <laughs> I'm chewing over here as fast as I can. <laughs> It's okay. You're okay. I'm going to give you a little mini lesson about bubblegum. And of course, that the reason why I chose bubblegum is because Gilly's, Gilly chews bubblegum throughout the book. So it's this is all from Wikipedia. It's not... <laughs> It's not terribly scientific, and it's just a funny, a fun, funny little thing that to, to add as our snack. So, bubble gum, okay, it was created by a man named Walter Dimer, and he created it in 1922 for the Fleer Chewing Gum Company. And if you guys recognize Fleer, Fleer is the name of also the name of like the trading cards. So one recipe that he made for chewing gum, he called it blibber blubber, and it was found to be less sticky than regular gum and stretched more easily. And then it was renamed by the president of Fleer as Double Bubble because of its stretchy texture. And that remained the dominant brand of bubble gum until after World War II when bazooka bubble gum entered the market. And if you guys have ever had bazooka bubble gum, you know that they're basically like – it's about the size of a razor blade and it's ridged and it basically will break your teeth off. Um, but it comes with a delightful cartoon, Bazooka Joe cartoon, which I used to really love reading as I shoved those hard shingles into my mouth. But what I found really interesting when I was reading all of this is that until the 70s, specifically in 1978, which is when this book was written, bubblegum still tended to stick to one's face. So think about when Gilly was blowing blowing bubbles and they would pop, it was like on her face, like it was gray and it was like sticky, you know? And so Hubba Bubba and Bubble Yum in 1978 and 9 created a version that didn't stick as much. So now when you blow bubbles with Bubble Yum or Hubba Bubba, Bubblicious, things like that that are actually made as bubble gum, they're not going to stick to your face. They may be sticky, but they're not going to stick to your face. And also they're pink because Dimer just happened to have pink dye on hand. In 1928. Um, But that's one of the reasons why, like things like gumballs and then things like double bubble, they just kind of stay, they stay gray or like sticks of gum are gray. And then that became a hallmark of bubble gum is to be that pink that just happened to be the color that he had nearby. The other thing is there are some records, like Guinness Book of World Records. In 1966, Susan Montgomery Williams had the largest bubble ever blown, which was 26 inches in diameter. 
And then Chad Fell holds the record for largest hands-free bubble gum bubble at 20 inches achieved on the 24th of April, 2004. So I'm guessing that Susan actually was holding the bubble because <laughs> if you have the hands-free bubble bubble, then it just stands to reason that Susan was actually holding her bubble. And that seems really gross to me. So we have, I actually chewed all mine ahead of time. And it was very difficult to find actual just bubble gum in the store. I don't know what's happened. Marcy, you remember when we were kids, there was all like rows and rows of different flavors, different like fruits, different soda, Mm -hmm. different, all sorts of different types of flavors. And I don't know what happened, but it took a lot of hunting and gathering to find actual bubble gum. So we had Hubba Bubba and Bubble Yum. And then we had gumballs, and then we had Big League Chew. <laughs> I will say that the Hubba Bubba and the Bumble Yum, I, I shoved a, like four or five pieces of each in my mouth, and that was the only way I could get a decent-sized bubble. But I did like go in a mirror and blow a bubble, and I got one that was probably about, I want to say, about six, about six inches wide in diameter. So I feel like I achieved something. I could not get the bubble, like the double bubble gumballs or the Bigly Chew to produce much of a bubble. I could not get much of a bubble on any of them, honestly. The Probably the bubble yum was the best for that. But I, I find it interesting that they all have like a concept now. Mm-hmm. Like the gumballs, classic, right? Mm-hmm. Big League Chew, I find disgusting, the concept. <laughs> It's packet- you don't like putting pink shreds in your mouth? Well, like, I assume that that's based on, like, chewing tobacco? Yeah, I think so. It's disgusting. I'm going to pretend to have chewing tobacco and then eat shreds of pink gum that tastes like soap and don't make a bubble. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Like, the the bubble tape I mm-hmm. loved as a kid, so, like, A-plus for concept. It also tasted kind of soapy, but... It tasted like, did you remember when you used to go in those stores in the mall that sold like weird house goods and always had cinnamon brooms? Mm-hmm. That yeah. smell, if that smell was a flavor, that's what this tastes like. Exactly. Uh, huh. The, the bubble yum tasted good, like in a bubble gum flavor way, and the gumballs tasted good in like a fruity way, mm-hmm. but the other two, Gross. Yeah, I, you know, I, it did all of them though, within a couple minutes, really just evolved into like, chew, you're, you're just chewing a piece of cardboard. Like, there's the flavor goes away really fast. Well, yeah, if you look at it, because they're not sugar free and so they have calories listed. So I'm basically, I'm assuming that what is happening is that the sugar is dissolving. And so you're like chewing until the sugar is gone and then it's just like the gum structure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, I think that it's interesting that there were, you know, innovations made like that, you know, it was less sticky and that, you know, I don't know. I find it very fascinating that it was pink because that's just what he had around. Well, yeah, that's weird too. Because when I was a kid and I used to read like the Anne of Green Gables books, they used to chew like plugs of sap, I guess, off of trees. Mm-hmm. And like that was gum. Like apparently it was thought very unladylike to to like store bought gum. Mm. And so I, I don't know how like arriving at the pink option was very strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I I don't think this is something I'm going to be doing on a regular basis, but it is really interesting to think about what I you know my memories of bubble gum from 30 years ago. And there used to be so many different types. And then there was this kind that was like, was it sucrets? And it was gum with like gel in the middle. Do you remember those? Oh, no. Oh, God, it was weird. Do you remember fruit stripe gum? Oh, yeah. That yeah. tasted terrible, but we loved it anyway. Well, I felt like it actually kept its flavor even less. Well, that's good, though, because the flavor was bad. I don't know. Like, I think at the time, having a very undeveloped palate, I was like, fruit. It's just, it's a fruit flavor, it but like, like what fruit? It had know? like that fake cough syrup, grape and cherry flavor in there. Yeah. I, oh, 
But man, we couldn't get enough. We couldn't. But I have to say, the bubble tape was definitely our favorite. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember really getting into the bubble tape. I remember being very into, like, I think they had like bubble yum cola, bubble yum grape, because it was just so weird. Like it was Ooh, so the weird. watermelon. The watermelon was so good. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I did not remember that until you just said that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, what couldn't they do? <laughs> oh, chemicals in the 90s. Um, yeah, well, so, but I, yeah, this is a very unscientific, very quick, just little brief jaunt down memory lane with gum because it's so featured in the book. Yeah, at one point she gets it stuck in her hair, like on some of the book covers, she is featured mm-hmm. blowing a bubble. So. Oh, God. The book covers. Oh, God. <laughs> the, the one that I have is this mass market paperback from Trophy. Is it the picture? Is it the photo of the angry girl? Well, it's a painting. Okay. But the backdrop looks super fake, and she just looks kind of like Punky Brewster. Oh, is it the one where she has, she has like a red and black check? Yes. Shirt on? <laughs> yes. I feel like that's the most gilly. Yeah. Like, and the green rumpled background. Yeah. Yeah. There's one where I guess it's from the 1981 CBS Afternoon Playhouse special. Oh Lord, where it's a, a picture of a, a like a teenager, but I mean she really looks like she's in her 20s and she's gonna like punch her eye out, and she's got like a mullet, like a feathered mullet. Oh, I see it, I see it. Oh, yeah. yeah well, so that's yeah. that's another thing I'm interested to see how the movie does because in the book Gilly is 11 and the actress playing her was 14, but you're right about that picture. But she yeah. she has a Gilly vibe though. Well, I don't know. I I never thought of Gilly as like pounding somebody. It's all psychological terror. <laughs> but I mean, she clearly is not averse to pounding somebody. No. Yeah. Well, or at least threatening. The surprising number of these have have bubblegum on the cover. Yeah. Yeah. I see at least um, four versions. Yeah. It's you know I think it it's just it's kind of iconic. I think that image of her with the gum. Thank you for listening. Next episode we will be reviewing the Westing game, which Marcy, if you don't like that book, we're going to have some kind of like schism. <laughs> no, I love the Westing game. I will, I promise I will not argue with you about it. Much. No, ar- arguments are great, but I mean, the Westing game is just, you have to, you have to love the Westing game or you can't be our friend. <laughs> is that our gang? Yeah. Our gang motto? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put it on shirts. You don't like the Westing game? F off or no kick rocks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, it's like the law. <laughs> the Newberry Tart law. Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart podcast. Please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.